episode 36, everyone. This was one of my personal favorite interviews to conduct. It was with Isaiah Jackson, who is the author of Bitcoin and Black America. Great book, by the way, a real page turner. The book is fire. When I started reading it, I, I just I had a really hard time putting it down. So I highly recommend checking it out. Again, it's called Bitcoin and Black America. I'm not commissioned to say this. I truly believe it's a fantastic book. Um, and yes, coming back to our conversation with Isaiah, we talked about a large number of reasons why Bitcoin is what we believe it to be. We talked about corporate socialism. We talked about his story and how he came across Bitcoin. Uh, by the way, about corporate socialism, I didn't know what it meant until we spoke about it. So don't worry if uh, you don't know what that term meant either. Uh, and we also talked about how Bitcoin is a game changer for the economic landscape for Black Americans. Such a fantastic conversation. I can't tell you enough how much we enjoyed interviewing him. And I've, we're 100% sure you're going to love it. So without further ado, let's dive in. The thoughts and opinions expressed by Keegan Francis, Murgakshi Palwe, and the guests interviewed on the Go Full Crypto podcast are solely their own. The content discussed are intended to be for informational purposes only. All right. Welcome to the show, Isaiah. I Thank actually you. want to begin with uh, something that you've written in your book. It's a quote I wrote down because it was so fire and so powerful. And then I want to ask you a question about it. So it goes like this. I was one of the people buried in debt, and my curiosity led me to find out how financial institutions can crash an economy because they were too big to fail. I got shivers go down my spine when I read that. And I really, I want you to introduce what led you to write these lines and tell me a little bit about your crypto story. Absolutely. So I like to say my crypto story actually started in 08, um, simply because I didn't know about Bitcoin, but when the recession was happening, I was in college. And you know, when you're in college, you're already broke, you're beyond broke. I'm putting together $3 for Wendy's dollar menu. Um, but uh, when the recession happened, that was the first time I, you know, in our lifetime, in my lifetime, that I saw everybody was losing houses. People were dropping out of college. I was like, what? You know, can this really happen? Because in my mind, I wasn't very economically sound. I was like, why don't we just print more money uh, and just sort of solve the problems? But of course, I learned later that you don't want that for inflation, but we do it anyway. Uh, so I learned that. And it took me sort of down a financial rabbit hole. Um, and, you know, in 2013, of course, I'm in the tech world uh, at this time, I'm a computer science major. I get into IT, uh, doing that for a law firm. And just before that, I was introduced to it when I was a teacher. And 2013, it, it clicked. It was really like, uh, it was just something about the way Bitcoin worked. Sort of, I, I, I would say I'm sort of a, uh, I, I don't know, I, I, I'm a libertarian or I don't want to put myself in a group, but I'm really somebody who pushes back against establishment type stuff. So Bitcoin seemed perfect. And the group of people that was around back in 2013 were just a bunch of anarchists and like, coders and people who were, you know, very content with wearing sweatsuits every day like me. So uh, I was, you know, really hell-bent on getting into the Bitcoin industry, studied every day, hours, and, uh, you know, led me to writing the book and uh, a lot of stuff along the way. But, uh, you know, that was the beginning of the journey, uh, the economic crash. And then, of course, 2013 being introduced. So during that time, when did you first hear of Bitcoin? I first heard of Bitcoin in 2013 uh, from a roommate. And the best part about that was that he worked for a bank, uh, which was very <laughs> ironic. Uh, he just was like, he just threw his hands up. He was like, because we, we're all, you know, all three of us just graduated college. We're looking for ways to make money. And he just threw his hands up. He was like, you know, at my job, they talk about this thing called Bitcoin, but it's too techy for me. I don't understand. You'll probably like it, Isaiah. That's to me. And uh, first video I saw was Max Kaiser, who's very popular now. And, uh, you know, the Kaiser Report sort of helped me. Then I saw a report from the Winklevoss twins. Where they right. were saying Bitcoin could go to a hundred thousand, and I'm looking at it like, wow, they made a big case for a hundred thousand. And back then, it was sort of like, uh, it was like I believed it, but it was still like, I don't know, if we can get to a hundred thousand. You know, Bitcoin is like a hundred something bucks at the time. Uh, but now, today, as we sit, hundred thousand seems very much in play. Maybe in the next few months. So, um, you know, seeing that report, seeing uh, you know, sort of the back background behind it, 
and almost having nothing to lose is sort of what got me into it. Right. Okay. So um, there was another quote, which is something that I've written down from your um, preamble. And it was 2014 was my most important year in crypto. I learned that the price meant nothing. Focus on the technology. Can you walk us through what led you to get into Bitcoin and buy a little bit initially for the price and what roller coaster ride changed your mind to look at the technology instead? Well, that roller coaster ride is called market cycles. When you see a complete bear cycle and there's nothing you can do about it, you will take the time to learn. And uh, I often joke with people that anybody who buys the top of a market, they instantly become holders uh, for at least two or three years because you don't want to, you know, sell at a loss, 80% loss or whatever. Uh, right. So, yes. That's what started it. Uh, the thought process, the, the roller coaster from 2014 was I got in 2013. The price went from $200 to $1,000 in a month. I had never seen anything like that in my life. A little bit of money I had, I was like, wow, could make a lot. You know, if this keeps going up, of course it didn't. It, it was in the bear market from, you know, end of 2014 all the way through 2017, three years. So that was the most important time because then I learned about how scarcity, how important scarcity is for one. I, I, you know, you knew it, but I didn't really realize how scarce Bitcoin really was. Of course, the price, people denominate Bitcoin's price in USD. But once I understood, it doesn't matter what the price is. It matters how many Bitcoins out of 21 million do you have. That will be your value for the future. I still think Bitcoin's underpriced. So your value for the future is more uh, the, the decrease of USD's value less than it is the uh, the USD value of Bitcoin. So in my opinion, that's what led me down the rabbit hole. I studied every day. I remember there were nights, many nights, going to sleep at 4 a.m., going to work at 6 and go excited. Not like I was sleeping. I was just like, man, I, I got this thing. And, uh, you know, it's nobody knows about it. I haven't told anybody because I didn't even say it out loud until like 2015. I was like, I'm not, you know, going to put myself on the spot. But yeah, it was a roller coaster ride, but I'm glad I learned it because the next bear cycle that came, I was fully prepared. And now that we're in the bull market again, it's it's almost like retirement. Like, hey, I, I'm not, I don't even look at charts. I'm just like, hey, I've been here before. Don't get scared. It's just how market cycles work. That's the roller coaster is market cycles. But when you know you have a good, good, uh, good product for the future, nothing worries you. And that's Bitcoin. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I read also in your book that um, you and your partner, go around doing a lot of workshops and talks and speak at conferences. Now, this question is something that we also get asked because we do the same thing here in Atlantic Canada and now um, via the, the podcast, is some people, there's actually so many skeptics. We've all had a little bit of skepticism towards Bitcoin initially. It's required because that's really what pushes us to go forward and really try to so, uh, answer our own questions. So with respect to the skepticism towards Bitcoin being a deflationary currency, have you engaged in conversation with anyone who argues that inflation is good for the economy? Yes, absolutely. And I love it. I love skepticism. I love pushback because I think a marketplace of ideas makes any good idea better. So if everybody agrees with each other, I hate sort of the uh, the wormhole you go, go to. It's, in Bitcoin, everybody agrees with each other. They're like, oh, yeah, it's great. It's like, okay. <laughs> sort of becomes an echo chamber. But I went on a book tour last year before COVID started. I was on a book tour from August all the way up until March. And in, what was that, October, went to Chicago, um, did a nice speech for a group of people. It was great. Institutional people, they loved it. Then I went to a meetup and I went to a meetup and it was, uh, I was doing an actual spe speech about the book. It was one guy. It's always one. Um, <laughs> it was one guy. He literally, and I write about this in the second book in more detail, but it was one guy he, literally, he just would not accept that Bitcoin was valuable. He kept trying to convince everybody there to see me that you shouldn't even care that much because Bitcoin is too volatile. Mind you, at the time, the price of Bitcoin was $8,000. So he's telling people this when if they would have bought that day, they could have almost tripled their money at this point. But um, he, he just was pushing back. He was like, how can anything work uh, in software? He was not a software guy at all. Um, so he just didn't believe it. But at the end of the conversation, he actually owned the Bitcoin. So he was like, you know, just in case. And I was like, well, that's all I'm telling you is you need Bitcoin just in case. <laughs> so we agree. And everybody started laughing. And it was just like, it was just one of those moments where we were going back and forth, but we were going at like a higher technical level. So some of the other people were like, what are y'all talking about? What is, you know, Blockchain Explorer? What is, you know, blah, blah, blah. What is that? Um, but once 
it came to that point, everybody sort of realized, yeah, you can push back against it. But uh, if you know what inflation is, you can see our currency has been devalued 99%. That's just data. That's not opinion. That's just that's just what it is. Every fiat currency that's been created has failed. Just data, just history. Um, and fiat is an experiment. It's a 49-year experiment that I believe has not done well. So, uh, yeah, had some pushback, but it's always fun. I like going back and forth because I'm tired of agreeing with everybody all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. But okay, so with respect to the short term, when we've pr- kind of criticized this in some of our previous episodes where com- countries around the world have to print money in order to stimulate their economy during the global pandemic. So what is a solution? What is a different solution than printing more money during such emergencies, according to you? Yes, so I feel two ways about it. First thing is, in the current landscape we have, if you're going to print money anyway, Corporate socialism is what's messing everybody up. They're literally giving money to people who are already rich. So printing money, if you're going to do it, let's just say, which the Fed has already said, we're going to print more money. If they're going to do it anyway, corporate socialism is what's killing the economy. They're giving money away to people who are already rich, and the lower people get $1,200. Like that's We saw it in real time. Um, the, The second thing is, in a perfect world, they wouldn't print money just incessantly for no reason. It would be backed by something, a reserve asset, which would be for strong. And our currency will be worth more over time, such as Bitcoin. So uh, in my opinion, if you're going to print money, you need to make sure you spread it among actuals. I would say target small business owners. I would say if you're going to give away trillions of dollars, just give it to businesses that make less than a million a year. That's the backbone of our economy. It's, you know, corporations are great, but they're just sucking up all of <laughs> everything because they small businesses don't have money. And Corona is like expedited that times 10, um, but it was happening anyway. So uh, if it's going to happen, um, you know, I would rather get money, but I would rather not see it, see something hard money like Bitcoin be established. I love that you just encapsulated that phenomenon as corporate socialism. I haven't heard those two words mashed together quite yet, but <laughs> that's exactly I know what it is. What you mean by that when you say it, and it, uh, it's just I'm going to use that in the future, no doubt. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing to see people in the corporate world scream capitalism while practicing socialism, and then people who are usually in a position where socialism or a, a version of a social safety net would help them are screaming capitalism. So pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Why well, you need handouts? And I'm like, do you realize this millionaire just got another million dollars? That's a handout. <laughs> Somebody who needs food getting $1,200 a month is not necessarily, that ain't even shake the budget. So, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that unfortunately we have a, a flip-flop of ideas. Are you following that Twitter account that's tracking the value of that $1,200? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I watch it every day. I, and I didn't, I didn't actually look at it today, but yes, it's, it's more than double. It's like 2,700 at this point. Yeah. And the, the idea for the people that are listeners that don't know, like there's this Twitter account that tracks that $1,200 stimulus check the day that most people got it. If you put it into Bitcoin that day, how much would it be worth now? And like Isaiah just said, it's, it's more than double and, uh, you know, probably going to yeah. continue to probably gonna keep going. And true. yeah, <laughs> I expressed that on Twitter and somebody actually responded and was like, well, I'm pretty sure they had to buy food, buy goods, blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, even if they didn't use the whole 1200 half, $50 of it, $100, do the math yourself. But any amount of that free money that you just got, if you invested it versus just spending it, you would have more money. That's the only point that that means. So, Do you think that like a number of people would do that with UBI? I, I know that UBI is a big conversation in Canada and United States right now. And uh, from my point of view, UBI would be something that I, I would heavily <laughs> think about putting... Uh, a lot of it into, into well, maybe I'll pay my food and then take my salary and shove that into Bitcoin. But like, how much of that do you think should be used in Bitcoin, used to buy Bitcoin? And this probably goes into your idea of building a circular economy and, and micro economies. Like if we have Bitcoin, we don't really need the, the U.S. dollars anyway that yeah. we're getting from UBI. True. Um, I think if the UBI comes around, the only way it can actually be distributed is a digital currency way. So mm. we have USD coin, we have uh, Paxos, whatever digital dollar is available on these on-ramps, that will be the way it's distributed. I actually wrote a letter uh, to the uh, the banking committee, had a conversation with the head of banking in New York, the chairman of the banking committee in New York. I actually expressed this. And it's like, we have airdrops in our you know, in crypto. Very easy. I mean, airdrops are something that I'm sure the best minds in the government could do with the UBI. So when that happens, what I think will happen is most people will receive that airdrop, realize that dollar is not worth much. They're on on ramps that have Bitcoin. They're going to buy Bitcoin. 
Because if those UBIs come out to PayPal, they buy Bitcoin. They come out to your Cash App, you buy Bitcoin. They come out to your Coinbase. So I think uh, UBIs could work. Um, you do have to sort of figure out how much each person is getting. And then if you want to change the way society works, the, the amount people get paid is going to actually probably be less. So you do have to change some things, which would be fine because there's so much abundance in the world. Most of the stuff should be almost free anyway. Uh, but I, I think that is a very big possibility. UBI comes out, the people choose Bitcoin uh, instead of, you know, the digital dollars, just a representation of what you already have. Yeah. Guys, I'm stuck on something that you mentioned earlier that you understood <laughs> that I've been wanting to ask about. And that's, um, what is corporate socialism? Can can you talk about that just to define it a little bit? Yeah, so let's start with socialism. Socialism is a, uh, a set of ideas that states that the state will distribute money and uh, resources uh, evenly based on some sort of standards. The problem is at the corporate level, they have the lobbyists, they have the congressmen. So when they pass these stimulus checks, they write the rules, they set the standards for this type of person can get money. So if those type of people are all the millionaires that just funded their political campaign, that's who's going to get it. So corporate socialism is when they fail, when all these uh, big airlines have failed, like just there recently when all these big hotel chains, uh, matter of fact, in 08, if capitalism was real, all of those banks would have just been gone. That's why I, I kind of hate when people say they yeah. hate capitalism. I'm like, we haven't experienced capitalism because <laughs> if that was the case, all those banks would have been gone and Bitcoin might have, it, it came in 08, 09, Bitcoin might have been 100,000 already. So right. that's that's the thing I tell people. Corporate socialism is they keep keeping them up, keeping them up, keeping them up, just enough to keep them afloat because they've still believe in trickle down. I don't know. It's never worked. But corporate socialism, you hand it out to the corporations, they keep it. And what they do is, this is very key. What they do is they give a small amount. I call it the Nino Brown effect. It's like uh, if you watch this movie, New Jack City, it's a drug dealer who has damaged his community, made millions, but he hands out turkeys on Thanksgiving. This is what these big corporations do. They get billions and then they hand out turkeys. They say, oh, we got a food drive donating $250,000. So everybody thinks they're fine, but they just paid themselves big bonuses or stock buybacks to keep their investors invested. That is what corporate socialism is. Because if you took that same money and gave it to regular people, what would they do? Whatever's in their best interest. And that's what corporations do. So that's corporate socialism. And I write about that more in the second book. Uh, the first book, if you saw, is a chapter called Buck the Fanks. Love it. The second book is actually Fuck the Banks. It's a straight, straight line. <laughs> no more, yeah, no more beating around the bush. <laughs> uh, so this is in, in there as well, because I don't think people have heard the term corporate socialism, but it's very real. It definitely exists, and coronavirus has exposed it even more. Yeah. That sounds like crony capitalism to me. Crony it's capitalism. Cronyism, yep. same thing. Yeah. Okay. Yep, cool. Because capitalism, if, if it was a free market, if you fail, you failed. As a small business owner, if your business fails, you don't just get money from the government unless you have a lobbyist. So, well, just one more tangent too. Just uh, <laughs> one of the uh, one of the revelations that I had recently was from a Robert Breedlove article called uh, mm -hmm. "Money Money Bitcoin and Time." Breedlove uh, is great, great philosopher. Yeah. Yeah. amazing, just incredible. Uh, I think we went on like a two or three month binge of just all of his material. <laughs> yeah. But uh, when we un I understood that. Uh, that money, like there's not a free market for money, right? That like our, our money market right now is is controlled by a socialist policy. It's controlled by a centralized institution called the Federal Reserve. Yep. And that blew my mind. I, it, it hadn't even really occurred to me to think about money as a market itself, but it's the biggest market in the world. And that's like mm -hmm. inextricably linked to this idea that we've just been exploring of, of uh, what crony capitalism um, and what was, what was it again? It was socialistic. Uh, corporate socialism. Corporate socialism. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's it's uh it's forced consensus. You know, Bitcoin is great because it's voluntary consensus. If you want to join, cool. If not, we don't care. Uh, with forced consensus, you're born into an like I just had a daughter a month ago. She just got her social yeah, it's her social security number, her uh, uh, birth certificate, all of that is her stamp. She's a U.S. citizen. She's forced to use the dollar now. She's just born in the, you know, and it's it's weird because. You're right. The foreign exchange market, there's thousands of currencies. I mean, anybody can use it. It's just it's nationalistic and it's outdated, in my opinion. Yeah. You should be able to travel freely and use whatever money is best at the time. Fantastic. And it, well, I think this is a great time to uh, segue into another quote of yours from chapter one called Basics of Bitcoin. And it was, um, you can't build a strong community without your own currency. 
Um, now, there's a couple of things that I really want to bring up with that, but a small pretext to what concluded with that sentence was um, banks who encourage redlining deny loans to qualified applicants. Um, and even beyond race, bank bankrupted the entire financial system in 2008. Um, so... Coming back to the whole, uh, you can't build a strong community without your own currency. We recently got in touch with the Bank of Canada, just asking them why there wasn't enough material on their website for <laughs> Bitcoin, since it is a cryptocurrency. And they they took uh, they took heed to the term currency. They said, well, Bitcoin is not a currency because a currency has a store of value and it's an accepted medium of exchange and like three, four other things. But with respect to the store of value, I mean. <laughs> we, we 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 responded to them saying, well, you know, why is it that um, my my father-in-law went to the same university that I that I went to 30 years ago and he paid ten thousand dollars, but 30 years later I have to pay sixty thousand? How is that a good store of value? Because exactly. education hasn't gotten more expensive. It's actually <laughs> It's actually gotten worse. You said it's actually gotten worse, and you pay more. That's so crazy, isn't it? Um, even housing is another thing. People used to have brick homes. $30,000. Now you can get this like new creative vinyl siding, small home or a small apartment, and you can't even afford a home and it's $300,000. So yes, inflation is real. And as a store of value, you know, as a currency, uh, you know, when you talk about money, what, what money is, Bitcoin fits the bill perfectly. But if there's one aspect of it that I won't even go back and forth with, it's store of value. Like you cannot deny that something that went from six cents to Almost $20,000 is not the best store value. It's numbers. I don't even debate that. It's literally the best asset of the, of the last decade. So I uh, don't really debate that with people anymore. I can We can go back and forth about medium of exchange. Uh, we can even talk about unit of account, but that's only because Bitcoin is early. Bitcoin has time. It, it's going to take time. Even just about the store of value, though, I was reading one of um, Paul Krugman's um, reports on the New York Times. And- oh, man, what a sap. one of the articles was titled bitcoin is evil and then uh, that's the only one that stuck out but there were so many more and he he calls it like techno babble and libertarian currency and uh, one of the things that he pointed out was that um if the u.s or if the fiat tanks uh gold has a better reserve because at least you can make jewelry with it but what's what's this, the floor for a currency such as Bitcoin? And that was an open question. And I was just baffled reading all of those analogies because it comes from a place of lack of knowledge for sure. But what is your opinion on something like that? Yeah, uh, I think it's lack of knowledge on the lower level. Paul Krugman is smart enough to know what he's talking about. That's deliberate. He can't say Bitcoin's good because he works with the people that are the competition. You can't say it's good. So when people see these quote unquote smart people, the identifier of smart for them is being on TV, spouting the views of the people behind them. They're not necessarily, like I said, they have accolades, they have graduates, but whenever you turn yourself over to these big corporations and they will have a message to get out, you dumb yourself down to put out whatever they say. So that's why you have Jamie Dimon saying Bitcoin is going to, or it's whatever, uh, Warren Buffett calling it tulips. Mark Cuban saying it's a banana's more valuable. It's nonsense. We all know none of this is true. Um, I forget the guy is is Warren Buffett's friend. Uh, what did he call it? He called Charlie it like Munger. a demon, huh? Charlie Munger. Yeah, Charlie Munger. He was like, it's like demon money, or like I was like, what are you even talking about at this point? <laughs> uh, it's, it's for like devilish thing. I was like, okay, now we get to the point that they've, uh, if you read between the lines, they've exposed themselves as patsies for the broader message, and banks want to make sure that the regular. Everyday people who read these people's newsletters, watch their shows, think to themselves, well, Paul Krugman doesn't agree. If Warren Buffett doesn't agree, then I'm not going to go with it because they're the smart people in the room. Unfortunately, the other smart people in the room who are just as smart and just as wealthy are being drowned out. Stanley Drunkenmiller may be the best trader alive. Uh, Michael Saylor, his stock just went up $312 million. Like Jack Dorsey, who I've actually had a conversation with, one of the smartest people of our time, two of the greatest products, Cash App and Twitter. They are on the Bitcoin side, but they get drowned out in the mainstream media. In our media, our echo chamber, yes, we know them. But the mainstream, you're right, Paul Krugman, Warren Buffett, they'll get all the, the airtime. And it's hilarious because people are like, well, Bitcoin is $20,000. How is it still bad? And gold is gold is just a shiny rock. Let me get that, <laughs> Let's get that out of here. <laughs> I always like to piss off the gold people. I mean, I have gold myself just because early in my life, I was told that's a good store of value. But uh, if you just look at somebody like... um. Peter Schiff, 
his son bought Bitcoin. His son is up 100%. And during that same time period, he's down 4%. What do you tell an 18-year-old at that point? So I'm not really concerned about the old guys, you know, saying it. It's the younger people who are going to bring an usher in Bitcoin. And there's nothing you can tell them because they'll be too rich to get. Right. So when you say that you can't build a strong community without your own currency, can you talk a little bit more about how currency and having something that you believe is money is really the cornerstone here with respect to knowing that you have built a strong community and then that circular economy ultimately? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I've reviewed a lot of the strategies, economic, social, uh, political, that Black people have employed uh, since the early 1900s to try and get a semblance of what we call freedom. And nothing has actually worked from an economic standpoint. We still have the same median value uh, per family as the 1960s. How is that possible? We work harder. We have, we have more production. Our production is constantly going up in America. Uh, more Black people open businesses. There's more Black politicians. We have a Black president. We've had marches. We've had uh, whatever else you can think of to increase our status in society. But the money has not changed. So currency, in my opinion, the currency that you use, unless it is something like Bitcoin, or your own personal, you know, cryptocurrency, uh, you won't see the value of what you're producing, which we haven't. I mean, again, inflation is real. Inflation kills, literally. Uh, yep. There's there's literally <laughs> data on how inflation kills. So uh, the Black community needs either to use Bitcoin as its own currency, reserve currency, so to say, um, maybe a digital dollar on top of it, that, using Bitcoin as a reserve currency, not sure, you know, working out the mechanics, but you have to be able to transact in a currency that won't be tainted based on human problems. Humans are racist. Humans are sexist. Humans have issues that prevent them from creating a fair system. If the software is fair, though, that's what we should use. And I think Bitcoin is a good answer to that. Um, also, not counting out uh, you know, any other cryptocurrencies that may provide those, those solutions. Yeah, it's really awesome that you said that software, we can look at software, we can read the code base, we can look at the numbers, and then we know quite literally, we as developers know that if it is in a decentralized uh, system, then it's really impossible to change what has been written. But how, what, how, wow, what analogies have you <laughs> used and how have you convinced other people who aren't developers, who don't understand the importance of decentralized software or how the mechanics of that really play out? How do you explain to them that this is really something that we can trust? Oh yeah. So, um, one example I use is whenever people discuss the current system versus Bitcoin, I always say, do you trust humans or do you trust math? And yeah. usually they always stop for a second, but they're like, yeah, math, you know, math software works with humans don't, you know, whatever. It's almost like, would you rather a human do a bunch of multiplication problems or a calculator? And a lot of times, you know, people it instantly clicks and it's like, yeah, you know, I can get that. So going forward from that point, I always try to explain to them that, the reason that the Bitcoin industry is so important is because the on-ramp or the onboarding into Bitcoin is not stopped by anything, which we've seen in our financial industry too many times. So uh, with Bitcoin, I feel like if we have the chance, nobody I know Black wants a handout. We just want the opportunity to make it like anybody else without these small little restrictions made by humans to hold us back. And they're very subtle. That's the problem. They're not outward. And people are like, well, you don't walk on the bank and they, they kick you out because you're black anymore. It's like, yeah, but if they give loans based on zip codes and we were redlined in the certain zip codes, then the same things from the 40s are still happening in 2020. So uh, just making sure that those things are changed. It can only happen by the people. So we have to shift our view. And I think Bitcoin's a great vehicle to do that uh, um, going forward. So you just said these small things, but I mean, I, I would even go so far to say is they're not small things. They're big oh, things. In yeah, terms yeah. of more of your book, uh, uh, Buck the Fangs, uh, great title uh, of the chapter. Uh, there's just an enumeration, a list of fines that were paid by uh, United States banks uh, on all of the, well, you read it and you're like almost in disbelief about the things that they were doing with respect to preferential treatment towards uh, toward, well, towards people that are not black. It was, mm -hmm. was non-preferential treatment for <laughs> for people uh, that are applying for loans or getting mortgages or uh, like redlining, all, all of that stuff. Uh, do, do you have a comment on that? Oh yeah, so it, um, a lot of the things that were happening, uh, happening when I talk about these uh, moments, I wanted to make sure that I started closer, as close as possible to the date. If you notice, there's nothing later than 2010, I believe. Right. Because I wanted to drive home the point that this is not something that went away. They just know how to cover it up better. 
I mean, just look at this year. Where did that billion dollars worth of cocaine from J.P. Morgan go? Can anybody <laughs> answer that for me? <laughs> that was in the news for like 30 seconds, and then it was gone. So even though it's not something banking-wise like discrimination, it's just that they get away with it. That's, that's the big issue. Nobody went to jail. They paid a fine that they made back in two days, and that's over. Uh, so in, in my opinion, I wrote that uh, you know, just to make sure people understand it's still very present, still prevalent. If it wasn't prevalent, there wouldn't be people talking about it. There aren't black people bringing this up just for our own good. It exists. Uh, so I wanted to, to drive that point home. And then the second version of Fuck the Banks, it drives it home even more, but it also gets into the intricacies of how certain banks have taken over parts of crypto industry. So fuck them too. Uh, so because <laughs> we're getting to a point now where you're starting to get crypto banks or crypto-ish banks, and they're just doing what was done before. I want to make sure people get the message from before <clears throat> Coinbase. Uh, and make sure nobody <laughs> goes down the wrong path. So, but yeah, it's uh, it's all a learning experience for people who read it. Most people, when they read it, it's a learning experience. But once you know that, your choice what to do from that is up to you. I mean, I, I couldn't read something like that and be like, mm, yeah, I still trust the banks. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. It, it just doesn't. So, if you don't want to go with them, you have to choose another option. I just present Bitcoin's case. We kind of take the opinion that uh, that banks are somewhat necessary, like they perform a vital function. It's just that they're not really built that well right now. Um, I, and I know that you uh, you just kind of gave an example of a, a neo bank or a crypto bank that uh, that you may not uh, agree with. And then, is there any that you would like to shout out right now that you say, you know what, like that company, that crypto bank, they're doing a good job. Like I just want to give you an opportunity to like shout out a couple of companies that that you do like what they're doing, like recommend them to to some people. Oh, yeah. So um, I do want to shout out uh, Swan Bitcoin. I love what they're doing with the dollar cost averaging. The best way for people to uh, earn it. Uh, Uphold. I love, love their exchange. Very low key, clean cut, straight to the chase. They have different cryptocurrencies. They also have gold and silver if you want that uh, on Uphold, which is you know very valuable to some people. And then um, I don't know if I would call it a crypto bank or whatever, but Lolly to me is the best, uh, the best Bitcoin crypto service, period, because you get paid to do what you already do and you're getting paid in an asset that is way more valuable than cash. So I uh, love Lolly, love all that. And again, I don't have problems with people having a business like crypto banks. Fine. I understand that's going to exist. What I hate is they co-opt the message of we're a crypto company that's looking out for the little guy. No, you're not. man. Just don't even say it. Like, I, I understand you're not looking out for the little guy. Um, you're doing business with institutions, uh, which is fine. There's, there's nothing against that. It's just that as we move forward into the future, I don't want the message to get lost of why crypto yeah. was created. It's getting lost already because new people are coming in and they think it's because of PayPal or because of whatever. And it's like, no, this they, they're late to the party like everybody else. Uh, so just want to make sure I get that message across. This is a kind of a fun little rabbit hole to go down. It's like you mentioned Satoshi Nakamoto, I think, in the first paragraph of, of chapter four. and Even and, in the first, like in the first preamble, also, which reminded me to say when I read that, I really appreciate and I really want to acknowledge that you um, spoke of Satoshi Nakamoto as an anonymous individual or group of individuals and didn't assign a gender to them. Um, I read in a lot of other articles by very famous personalities where they've just gendered Satoshi Nakamoto as a male figurehead and made him to be one person. And I really appreciate that you stuck to calling Satoshi Nakamoto a group of individuals or an individual we don't know. Oh, yeah. I think that's I, I that. important for the narrative that, that you put forth as well. Like I, I've heard yeah. you call it like it's a currency for the people. And yeah, we, we call it the people's currency. And I mean, it, people is without sex, without gender, without race. And so it's super important that we actually talk about Satoshi Nakamoto, like the ultimate creator of this thing that we all like and believe in as a, as something that every single person on the planet can relate to. And uh, the, the question that I was gravitating towards uh, was uh, like, what do you think Satoshi, uh, individual or group, would be thinking about the evolution of Bitcoin today? I know that's kind of an esoteric question of sorts, but uh, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on that. Oh, yeah. So first, it's a crime that Satoshi hasn't got a Nobel Peace Prize. Whoever, <laughs> whoever they are, you should have won. It should have been one. Just just for the idea that you could go against the Federal Reserve, which has been around hundreds of years, uh, over 100 years. Uh, but yes, <clears throat> if Satoshi, uh, whoever they are, he, she, it doesn't matter. Um, if they viewed from the beginning to where we are now, I think they would be 
of, of course excited that we moved up in price, but I think they would be a little disappointed at the, again, the message being overtaken by corporations because it was literally the first thing on the blockchain showed the article in the UK uh, Times where they were talking about the bank's bailout again. Remember, people, that's why it was created. And whoever they are who created it, that's why they, it's around. Um, but I do think they're kind of a, a it's like a, if, if I was them, I'd be having a great smirk right now because <laughs> it's, a, it's like the ultimate smirk because all of the years of saying Bitcoin is going to fail, it's going away, it's this, it's that. Um, and the fact that yesterday, I believe Reuters had a, a, a headline that said dollar is crashing, Bitcoin becomes yeah. right? Like, I would have the biggest smirk on my face just reading headlines every day, just like, I, I knew this was going to happen. And, and everybody, you know, basically is adapting to it. But yeah, I think they're actually overall happy with the industry. And I think that they uh, would approve of a lot of the messages going out um, because we have so many smart people. Like I said, Free Love, you mentioned, I talked about Max Kaiser. We have some of the greatest minds in the world, Andreas Antonopoulos, talking about this. So I, I believe whoever they are, it will, it will be, they'll be happy. And if yeah. it's Hal Finney, R.I.P. Rest in peace, Hal Finney. If it's him, he's smiling down from wherever he is. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, you, you talk about smart people. I just want to take a minute to recognize that that's also you and us. You with writing Bitcoin in Black America and then the second book and us putting out this message and bringing people like you in the show and just talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency wherever we go. Absolutely. So, yeah. OK, so uh, something that I wanted to talk about was I wanted to bring it back to the whole currency um, conversation. And something that I wanted to ask you is how do you answer people that say, well, it's still it's so volatile. How can you transact in something that's volatile? I remind them that volatility is good. if You know what you're doing. Um, so if you think of volatility as a negative thing, you're only thinking of negative volatility. Uh, positive volatility is going from six cents to $20,000. You, that is good volatility. I mean, that's positive volatility. That's what you want to see in an asset long term. Um, but the thing is, when people mention it, what I always remind them is the volatility of Bitcoin over a three to five year span, zero people have lost money. If you bought Bitcoin at any point and you've kept it for over three years, you've earned some sort of money, even if it's 1%, whatever. Um, once we hit the all-time high you know, a couple of days ago. So as volatility goes, you want volatility for an asset that is positive. You don't want fiat volatility that's down 99% since it's been created uh, because that volatility is smaller, but it's more deadly because it's automatic. It's not even a maybe. Inflation is real. It's going to happen. So um, I, I, anybody that asks about volatility, I tell them, if you know what you're doing, volatility is good. If you're a trader, this is, I mean, this is great market for a trader. I mean, any trader I've ever met that was in Forex or something else before, they've been in crypto the last three or four years. Like, oh, this is amazing, especially right now. So with respect to that, what's your opinion on um, people saying, oh, you know, you can buy a cup of coffee with Bitcoin. Um, so Who cares? What... Who cares? <laughs> 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 now, I mean, this is the thing. Bitcoin has proven itself as a store of value. Um, the medium of exchange portion of it, um, it is possible. And I think Bitcoin was created for people who need to use Bitcoin. There's a lot of holders who don't want to spend their Bitcoin. They would rather spend fiat, which is fine. So if you can't buy a cup of coffee with it, which is kind of false, you kind of can now with Lightning Network or Strike, um, you can buy a cup of coffee. But if you can't do that, it doesn't mean that it's invalid. Like People were using that as the basis of why Bitcoin wouldn't work. Roger Ver, he was saying Bitcoin Cash is great because it's instant payments. It's fast. Yeah, of course it's fast. Nobody's using a blockchain. It's just flying through all of the transactions. Bitcoin's slow because it's being used, but as a store of value, transfer of funds, transfer $300 million for $4 in a matter of an hour. Like that's what Bitcoin is right now. It's a store of value. When it moves to a medium of exchange, the amount of liquidity that comes into the market will make it less volatile. So people just have to wait. People are just impatient. Whenever you bring up a great idea, they're like, is it finished? Is it great? No, if I told you about Apple in 06 and you were like, is iPhone 12 here yet? You would sound stupid. <laughs> like, no, you don't know what's coming in the future. We just know they're going to get better. Bitcoin's the same. Okay. So in your journey of when you were reading about Bitcoin, did you ever stop to think, am I crazy that I'm falling in love with this currency, this internet money? <laughs> well, it's funny you say that, that phrase. You'll love the first line of my new book. So well, I'll just leave it at that. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah. I was gonna say, yeah, I was gonna say, it's, it's almost verbatim when I talk about the first few lines of, of the next book. But 
I knew I was like kind of an outsider with a lot of things that I do. So I felt crazy reading about it, but I felt at home. I was like, yeah, I always do stuff opposite of what everybody else is doing. You know what I mean? Like I was always doing extracurricular activities, things that most people would not get into. And again, like I said, I'm sort of not anarchist, but push back against anything the government says because I don't really believe anything. So Bitcoin, I felt right at home. And what confirmed it for me was that people did say I was crazy. If the idea doesn't have people calling crazy, it's not big enough. And that's 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 what I realized was I'm talking to people who don't, they're not dreamers. They don't go home and think about new ideas. They haven't been presented a new idea in years. They don't know any other industry that they could expand, maybe how the world uh, you know, expands like an industrial revolution because they weren't around to see it. But when you're in the middle of what I've called the biggest economic revolution ever, and you realize that, call me crazy all you want. Crazy people are going to be the ones that usually climb to the top. And I, I encourage it um, because that keeps me, it basically keeps me uh, grounded to the point where I'm like, all right, well, that means I'm still on my toes. I'm still figuring out new things because I have friends who still like, man, you're crazy. I still don't know how you got a Bitcoin eight years ago and like stuck with it. And I'm like, ah, well, you got to be a little crazy to be in this market. But those are the people that will work harder at it. People that are quote unquote crazy. Uh, anybody that's in the middle of straddling the fence, uh, I believe somebody said you buy Bitcoin at the price you deserve. So yeah, I read that yesterday on Twitter. Yeah, somebody wrote that. I've read it a while ago. I can't even remember quoted it, but I'll figure it out later. Yeah, I love it. Whoever whoever said that, great. Showed up to you. Oh yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, okay, so another quote. Um, it's actually the beginning of one of your chapters, and it it goes like this. Naval Ravikanth once described Bitcoin as freedom from tyranny and oligarchy dressed up in a get-rich scheme. Get-rich scheme. Yep, and, and something that we've heard you talk about in a couple of other interviews is uh, people people listen to mainstream media. And we were, we were doing some research on some local newspapers here and um, what they have about Bitcoin. It's all a, it, it only talked about Bitcoin when there was a scam. Uh, when Bitcoin was confiscated, but they didn't know how to do it because of a scam. Or in uh, Atlantic Canada, we have this huge case of um, the Quadriga CX. Quadriga CX, I was just about to say. Yeah, yeah, the owner died and that's when it was talked about. So yeah. never in a positive light. And the first thing that actually, I just did a presentation a couple of weeks ago and I said, well, you've heard of Bitcoin. What context have you heard it in? And I got some people to um, answer what they'd heard it in. And they said, oh, it's used to illicit um, drugs and it's used to... Um, just uh, launder money across borders and all of these reasons. So um, let's let's talk a little bit more about what your experience is with ridding people of those thoughts. Well, I would say it's, it's really close to my heart, a lot of the headlines you just described, because when I said saw those headlines, I would say, if you replace that with Black, pretty much what the media says. Black <laughs> people are on drugs. Black people commit crimes. Black people are doing this. And I'm looking at them like, that's not... But they don't talk about that the biggest uh, venture capitalist investment was $4 billion to a black man. They don't talk about the amount of businesses, the most, the group with the most businesses open over the last year are black women. They don't discuss that. Nobody knows it. But in our community, we know it. And we're like, why are we always shedding a terrible light when our community is moving just fine? That's Bitcoin for me. So it really it really hit home instantly. So I was like, anything that's, that challenges the status quo is going to get pushed back from the media because they're owned by corporations. Anything that they own, you have to know where the message is coming from. Uh, so once you know that, you just sort of ignore it. And because Bitcoin is valuable, yes, it's used for drugs. People who commit crimes are or big crimes, money laundering, uh, drugs, anything like that. It's a zero sum game for them. They get caught. They're going away for a long time. So they're going to use what's best to be used. So if they use Bitcoin, they obviously realize that it's the best way to transact. They're just always early to the game. They got to be a step ahead because when regulation and other people come, they got to deal with that. But that established it, you know, Silk Road was Silk Road. But once Bitcoin proves its value, it's like, yeah, it's more than that. I mean, people still use cash to buy drugs. Nobody stopped using cash. <laughs> so th that uh, that whole speak to me was uh, that was a preemptive strike by the media to try and get people scared away from the market, which worked. I have a lot of friends who were scared away until it was regulated. And I was like, y'all do realize the point of Bitcoin was to get away from regulation. Um, but now they're all they're all with it because they're like, oh, it must be real now. And that's sort of uh, the, the struggle you have. But I just try to make sure people realize, especially in the black community, it's like, hey, man, at this point, stop listening to the media. Uh, I have a 
a personal thing I do. I do the opposite of the media. I have like a 93% hit rate on like anything I see them say. I do the opposite and I'm, I'm killing it right now. So <laughs> I would just say, just, just ignore that. And then uh, the messaging behind it, just know where the message comes. Right. Going off on the whole regulation thing, this narrative that this cryptocurrency called Bitcoin has been invented by someone we don't know. We can't point to the institution or the person and be like, this is who did it. And we can't call a helpline or whatever. Um, <laughs> it, it's really something that puts people off. And um, I read this somewhere is when when we went off the gold reserve and um, there was the, somebody, somebody's face printed on a note. And then the, the, the bank said, well, here's an IOU, but you can trust it since there is the face of an ex-president or some uh, figure on it. So that built trust among the people because they thought, oh, this now dead person who was famous for what he... Yeah. <laughs> Almost always except for the Harriet Tubman that never came out, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> except for that, and, and then like that built trust among people, saying that okay, if you know dead dead people, dead famous people, or even just uh, people in in Congress or whatever, say, not Congress, that's the wrong analogy. But if a, an authority says that okay, this has value, then it has value. But I just um. It doesn't change the fact that it's subjective. That's true, but we're also so blinded by authority in that in that matter. It really feels like uh, when someone doesn't realize that you can buy Bitcoin even if the government says you can't because it's an internet currency. Like you can't rid yourself of the rights you have to the freedom of owning your own money because somebody says you can't. That's the whole point. You you like can you not realize? Can you not see that? someone is telling you can't do something that will give you rights to your own money. Exactly. Yep. And I uh, saw this quote. I can't remember who said it, but it was uh, anybody who gives up their freedom for security deserves neither. And I think when people think about Bitcoin, the first thing, of course, they're scared, they're fearful. And they think to themselves, well, what happens if the government takes it? And I always ask people, like, why is that a question? Why is that the first thing you went to? Because that's what everybody's scared of. That is the big fear. So if you combine fear with a lack of resources to change, because before Bitcoin, imagine our world right now and there was no Bitcoin. No, thank you. That would I would be scared shitless right now. Yeah. I'm very relaxed because we have the resources and I'm not fearful, but that's because I have the education. So when they say that, it's only because they always think anything new, especially black people. Any revolution we've had, Black Panthers, murdered. Malcolm X, gone. Martin Luther King, gone. Everybody who has done anything that is significant for the black community is gone. Even economically, Black Wall Street, biggest economy we had as a community, burned to the ground with bombs, fire, murder uh, in Tulsa. So all of this stuff, especially in the Black community, they're like, the first thing they say is, well, what if the government shuts it down? And it's almost like uh, it's almost like yoga for your brain to change it, to say, who cares? And then they're like, what, what do you mean? It's like, they, they can't stop it. And then they, it's like they can't figure out there's something the government can't stop. And I was like, the government is made up of people. These people only have limited knowledge of how things work, obviously, because when new technologies arrive, they take three, four years to come up with any regulation. Oh, so Bitcoin, three, four. You're being very generous. Maybe, oh, yeah, I was going to say, just to even present <laughs> some regulation. But I mean, Bitcoin's moving so fast. I'm like, who cares what they say? They've banned it in China a million times and they have the most miners in the world. Like, well, you, that doesn't stop anything. So um, I think governments are realizing that now and they're joining. That's why the message that I would give people before is that they can't do anything about it. They don't have a choice. They'll adapt to Bitcoin. And they're confused. And then now they're like, everybody's adapting to Bitcoin. I'm like, yeah, because they don't have a choice. It's for the people. You can't stop everybody. If simultaneously, there's nothing any regulator can do if everybody decided not to do it. Like, I know this COVID, uh, people have mixed feelings about COVID. But I saw one guy say, hey, it was a block in a city. I won't say it because I won't give him away. But there was a block of eight businesses. They just decided we're not shutting down. They just decided it. This is one square block. The police would show up every day. They would all pay the fines. They would come back the next day and people would come to eat. Thousands of people who couldn't eat other places showed up at these restaurants and the police couldn't do anything. They, they were like, well, they just keep showing up. What can we do? And I'm like, Regul- regulations, regulatory people can't do anything when people take action. And I think Bitcoin's the same way. As soon as people say, hey, we're not taking this anymore. We're going with Bitcoin. There's nothing they can do. They got to go with the people. They can only scare you so much. So, um, you know, I, I just think that's that's the way forward in the future. And the more information is out there, the more people will, will definitely want to use it. 
Okay, so coming back again to this um, freedom from tyranny and oligarchy dressed up in a get-rich scheme, I want to talk about the get-rich scheme um, a little bit because some of, um, I think even, would you say that you got in it to get rich quick? Uh, yeah, or more or less. Like initially, the, so yeah, one yeah. of the episodes, I, Make we mentioned money. that uh, like I, I came for the profits, came for the gains, stayed for the philosophy. So it's yeah. only after I like saw some gains that it, that made me pay attention and made me like think, okay, why is this actually going up by a factor of forty? Mm-hmm. Like between twenty fifteen and twenty seventeen, like how did that happen? Why does that make sense? Does it make sense? It's like, yes, it makes sense. And yes, it has some very good reasons. And uh, maybe we should learn those reasons and think about whether or not that's going to happen in the future, whether or not it's going to continue to happen and the underlying social context and implications that that kind of, you know, is the train rails for for the train of Bitcoin. Yeah. And, and, you know, the get rich quick scheme is is what I call the uh, medicine and the candy. Uh, Mm -hmm. The candy candy tastes great, but if the medicine is inside, you don't even realize it until it's, it's already working. And that's what Bitcoin does to people. They see the gains, they see the tech behind it, they see these these new words amongst the community. Like these people like you, you know what I mean? We talk to each other, people have meetups, and they're like, they just built a community from scratch. How is that possible? And then you see, of course, you know, going forward, how you can build business with it, store value. And that all comes from, I think, when you first see a, like you said, a 10x, 20, you're like, this, I didn't even know this was possible. Uh, because for most of people's parents, it wasn't. So you you've never heard. Like, imagine us now as parents telling our kids, yeah, 20X. Yeah, we're doing that crypto back in 2014, whatever. <laughs> our parents couldn't say that. It was like, even if you own blue chip stocks, they were like, yeah, we doubled our money in 10 years, which is great in like a regular market. But uh, yes, once you see that, you start to realize, okay, why is money moving here? Why is it valuable? You interact with the people in the community, you realize how smart these people are. And you're like, I want to be on that side uh, because these are the smartest people in the world and they're leaving their industries to come to crypto, not just money, people are leaving and coming into crypto. Resources are leaving, coming into crypto. And uh, I believe somebody described Bitcoin as the black hole that sucks up all resources. That's what's happening. We're just seeing everybody. That's what happened to me. I mean, and I think it happened to other people. Uh, It's it's dressed up as a get rich quick scheme. It's it's like the uh, Trojan horse. You think you're getting rich and then you realize that's changing my life right now. But the thing that's really similar with your story, Isaiah, um, and yours too, Keegan, is you both, when you bought into Bitcoin, have experienced the price of Bitcoin go up and crash. And it's it's then that both of you, from both of your story points, where you asked yourselves the question, why did this happen? How did this happen? And that propelled you further into studying the technology and the philosophy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like I said, when it hit 1,000 in 2013, 1,200 or so, and it went down to like 200. I didn't understand markets that well. So I was confused. I was like, I thought this was going to go up forever. And then I was really, really dedicated to watching markets. I don't know if you remember Poloniex back in the day. But yeah. I spent hours in the chat. Yeah, like just, it'd be like 1,100 people online in the whole world. And we're sitting on Poloniex at 3 a.m. talking about. That's my favorite exchange. Oh, shit. Oh, yeah, that's, that's what I said. That was my favorite. You probably exchanged messages. <laughs> probably did. I mean, like I said, it wasn't that many of us. And I felt like I knew all the names on there. I can't remember them now, but. Yeah, I had a beautiful head of hair before I started, <laughs> <laughs> before I started trading crypto. And that's that's what I'm saying. It was like I was so dedicated to it at that time. You honestly can't pull yourself away. And the money-making part of it is great as a young person um, because then that gives you options. You make money, then you can buy equipment for a podcast. Or you can start a business. Or you can get pay off debt that you needed to before. And then you can focus on other stuff. It just, it's just, it's compound interest. And I think Bitcoin is... The, the igniter and then after that you just go from there that's fantastic the, the conversation that we just had about this and then the freedom from regulators and knowing that you really aren't uh tied to strings and no one is really puppeteering you you think you're being puppeteered because that's what you're born into um i think that conversation really sums up um this description of bitcoin as freedom from tyranny and oligarchy dressed up in a get rich scheme and that brings me to um, my our last question for you, Keegan. Unless you had any, I, I probably have one more, but like, yeah, oh. nail it. Oh, okay. yeah, no, it's it's just uh, it's like, what's one radical idea that you have that you would like to see play out in your lifetime? I would like to see a truly decentralized exchange, truly decentralized um, exchange that allows loans or uh, funding for small businesses that can interact globally without any restrictions. 
Meaning if a guy in Kenya wants to invest $8,000 to a guy in Boston's business using Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, he can do it instantly, almost, you know, uh, you know, straight to the point. And there's no regulations that stop that from happening. Um, in the process of trying to build something like that called blockchain, which I discussed in the book, the first book as well. Um, but every single step is a regulatory nightmare or it's a money nightmare. Like, oh, yeah, to get past this point, you need another hundred thousand dollars to get past it. So I want to be able to free up all of those, uh, all of those things in the way. And just have a truly decentralized finance uh, exchange where you can go there, simply add crypto, add fiat, whatever you want. And you can just exchange without worrying about that. And, you know, we're actually pretty close. There is a company I write about in the book that's based in Toronto, Canada. Uh, these two guys, they've actually found a way for you to link your bank account, buy Bitcoin and crypto uh, instantly, same day, and also transfer it back and forth uh, with little to no uh, KYC on the first level. And then going forward, uh, it's actually to me and they have a card attached to it already, MasterCard. So uh, this company, it'll be in the second book um, and it's called Meraki Global, uh, M-A-R-A-K-I Global. Um, and their website be money. So we're seeing it happen. But if I could do that. That would be beautiful because you can access it with internet access, exchange with people all around the world. We have that to an extent, but it's the on and off ramp. It's like, who do, who do you got to give your information to? So I would I would love for that to stop at some point. Yeah, right. true. Uh, my, my last question is about, uh, we, we listened to you on the Pomp podcast. And uh, one of the things that you said on that podcast was that uh, your book is solution oriented. So you like to offer real solutions to real problems. And uh, I just want to have you reiterate or give you the platform to, to talk, talk about those, iterate over those problems, talk about the solutions, um, just, just nail it. Absolutely. So um, in the book, specifically in the black community, some problems that we have that I address. First problem being lack of uh, reliable store value, meaning our economy is not reliable enough. So Bitcoin solved that just as the ability to buy it and hold it long term. Also, too, the ability for our businesses to earn more capital and to broaden our horizons. Uh, Bitcoin allows that because it's better for marketing. Uh, I, I write about how businesses who have accepted Bitcoin have earned more over time, which is crazy that Michael Saylor actually did it with his treasury because the, the food business I talk about in the book, they did the same thing five years earlier. Nobody's going to talk to Justin today. And, uh, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. My friend, Justin. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's a problem. That's the solution to me. And it worked. Uh, also to using what we have to get what we want. Oftentimes the power that black people have, the, the industries that we actually are, uh, running, we don't actually have the power into it because we don't demand it. We're at 70% of the NBA, 65% of the NFL. We have a lot of entertainment. Hip hop is the biggest genre in the world. Um, we have a lot of new Black-owned businesses. All of these things are problems or create a problem when we don't own it. But if you say, I'm only getting paid in Bitcoin or like Russell Kuhn, or if you say, um, I'm only getting paid in cryptocurrency or whatever, that solves the issue because now you have leverage. Now you can say, hey, these people don't run us. We run them. Simply uh, things that Black people need, and which leads me to the last uh, problem I'll discuss, is that we don't have leverage. We don't have political leverage. We don't have social leverage. Because if we did, things would change faster. Because let me remind some people, if you speak ill of a Jewish person, it doesn't even make it to the new, you're gone. Like you don't even have a career. You know why that is? Because they have the capital to ensure that you cannot work around them or near them, which is great. There's Koreans in LA, my Korean friends in LA, Koreatown is very insulated. They have the capital to make sure that they don't get beat up by police because they know they're fired the next day if something happens in that community. That's what I want to see for black people. That gives us leverage if we have Bitcoin to say, hey, if this industry, this financial uh, industry will not treat us right, we will leave. At that point, Bitcoin, at its very least, I've always said, if the worst Bitcoin can do is change the banking industry to be more fair. That's the worst Bitcoin can do now. The best to be is going to be gone forever and to be the reserve asset and all that, blah, blah. But that's what I want to see. And I think those are solutions to uh, problems specifically in the black community, but there are broader problems discussing them. Amazing. Thank you so much for uh, for iterating over that. That was awesome. Do you have yeah, another thought there? Thanks. Well, I do. And it's a question, <laughs> but I already... Real quick. That. It's fine. It's fine. We got, we got five, five more minutes. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> yes, yeah, question. Um, have you ever wondered what would make Bitcoin fail? 
Yes. Um, I've gone through attack vectors probably more in the last year than I have what would make it successful. I'm pretty convinced it's going to be successful. Attack vectors, <clears throat> quantum computing. Uh, I'm not too worried about it, only because I think if somebody found a way to use quantum computing to affect us, they wouldn't go after Bitcoin. They're going after bigger stuff, the, the energy sector or something. Uh, so quantum computing to rearrange the blockchain. Also, um, the bullying of citizens into buying it or into confiscating it. Because if people remember, gold was confiscated in the, uh, in the 20s during the and 30s during the Depression. It literally said, come bring your gold. If we find you with gold, you get fined or you go to jail. Bring it to the bank. We'll give you this IOU and you can, when you want to return it. <laughs> I feel as though if banks get desperate, they can say, if you have Bitcoin, you need to either transfer it to your bank account or it's illegal to use as a U.S. citizen. The third thing I've seen just as a smear is that Chinese miners make up 80% of the industry. Chinese digital yuan is coming soon. If China gets enough power and they're transacting the digital yuan and people are buying Bitcoin as an asset quickly, fastly, I could see the news being, hey, do you love America? Then why would you have Bitcoin? It's owned by China. These are all, all these communists over here buying Bitcoin. All the old, uh, what is it? Uh, the old Red Party thing where they basically, what's the guy? It's, it's Joe um, McCarthy, the old McCarthyism. These Bitcoiners over here, they're the ones tearing down our economy. The reason the economy is going bad is because Bitcoin is sucking up all the resources. These Bitcoin people don't love America. All of these things, I've ran through these scenarios a million times in my head, and I still come to the same solution. It's a global currency that can't be stopped because you cannot, unless you shut down the internet, which we have bigger problems. You can't stop it unless you shut down the internet. That's I always come back to it. I'm like, even if we did have that, it would just be a real quick shakeup of the system. But people would adjust. They would say, well, okay, well, I can't get it on exchanges without getting it through. Well, I'm going private. Somebody would have a private database and people would be buying it peer to peer like I was back in 2013. It would just, it will solve itself. It'll, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. You can't really stop everybody. So you do what you can to make money off of it. So I ran through a lot of scenarios, as you can see. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of thinking on that. Just, just yeah. to, I stay on my P's and Q's whenever I go out on the road. Totally. Thank you for that answer. Just, uh, I think a month ago is when I started asking myself, am I crazy more repeatedly or um, like on a more frequent basis is what am I doing? And in, inside in deep in my heart, I know that what I am doing is the right path forward, but my skeptical brain sometimes takes over and is like, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you've analyzed every possible scenario where you won't lose a ton of money because you're so invested, not only in your career, but also with your investments in Bitcoin? So really, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm well prepared for Bitcoin. If it goes to zero, I'll be like, hey, we tried. Shit. I don't. <laughs> yeah. We really try. You know what I mean? Like trying to change the financial industry takes a lot. If someday something happens, Bitcoin goes to zero. We tried. That's, that was the best solution we had. The problem with Pandora's box being open is you can't close it now. Somebody could create a new crypto tomorrow. Somebody yeah. could create a new, uh, you know, some sort of new digital way to transact tomorrow. So uh, that Pandora's box been open. I just think Bitcoin is too valuable at this point um, to, to push it away. If it was going to get killed, it would have been done early, like Silk Road days. Like it would have been done in 2012, but it, it survived that. On the note of uh, Bitcoin going to zero, I, I think this was Anthony Pompliano or maybe it was Michael Saylor. He's like, that's impossible. You know why? Because if it ever goes to a dollar, I'm just going to buy the rest of them. Or yeah, I, I've said that on a few shows myself. I said, I have so many buy orders at $1, it'll never get to zero. Trust me. <laughs> 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 so I was like, at the very least, I'll take my $1 tulip and go home. Whatever. Right? So yeah, yeah, you're right. I don't think it'll ever go to zero. The market won't allow that too much. No, it really won't. So circling back to, to um, Rugakshi, you said earlier, what's the floor of Bitcoin? Yeah. And there's this idea in the in the Bitcoin space of uh, the hodlers of last resort, like basically the people that will never sell. And it's like, okay, you've got the people that use gold for jewelry and they, they are the hypothetical floor for the price or the value of gold. Um, but you've also got these hodlers who, you know, value Bitcoin more than they value anything else. They're never going to sell Bitcoin, no matter what. It can go to, you know, it can go to a dollar and they're still going to hold it and they're going to still feel as good as they, the day that they bought it. Yeah, I'm one of those people. So, yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yep. Fantastic. Okay, so thank you so much for being on the show, Isaiah. Uh, where can people find you to get in touch with you and find your book? Absolutely. The two best places to find me are on Twitter at Bitcoin Zay 
Z-A-Y, and on the website, www.bitcoinandblackamerica.com. So you can find the books there. You can also contact me there as well. So um, second edition is out. First edition is out as well. Uh, Pre-order is available. You ship in December 11th, and there are three webinars attached to it. So if you buy the book, you do get access to the three webinars for the second edition. So just trying to make sure I get all the information out before 2021 comes. Because I'm probably getting a little flip phone and moving to the country. Because I don't want people to call me <laughs> everything else. That was crazy. I just want to put this information out in the universe. Anybody who wants it, they'll have it. But, I, you know, I'm just sort of going on my way. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Isaiah. This was a fantastic conversation. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Loved it. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Guys. And to everybody listening and watching, stay tuned.